Well, if you haven't done so, uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 46. We'll be looking at all 11 verses, and our sermon title is, We Will Not Fear. And the key words for our worshipers in training are God, fortress, and nature. I came across a quote attributed to Thomas Boston uh, this week that's been circling on social media. So if you're on there, you've probably uh, seen it. It goes like this. This is a dark and gloomy day in which there seems to be a black cloud of wrath hanging over our heads, which if mercy prevent not is like to fall heavy on us. Yet the storm never blows so hard, but the children of God have peace, being though upon a sea, yet in a ship that cannot sink. Given our current state of affairs, the elders here at Redeemer Baptist Church thought it was a good thing to take a detour from our trek through the book of Micah to take a look at this ship in which we sail during this corona crisis, as one writer put it. My aim this morning is quite simple. I'm no medical or economic expert, and so I can't speak to all of the health and financial dangers we are currently facing, though they seem to be legion. But there is one thing that I can be quite sure of this morning, and that is the God of Jacob is a fortress for His people. And so while we certainly don't want to minimize the danger we face, and we should take proper safety precautions, we don't want to overreact either and to fall into panic and despair. Is it not, beloved, exactly times like this when the people of God can say with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. As we consider God's Word, the Word of the living God for us this morning, I'd like to notice with you three things. First, in verses 1 to 3, we will see that we do indeed live in a dangerous world. Second, in verses 4 to 7, we will see that even in the midst of this, this dangerous world, we are blessed with the very presence of God. And third, Verses 8 to 11, we are called and invited to come and behold the works of God to strengthen our heart in difficult times. First, look with me, verses 1 to 3, where we see our dangerous world. The sons of Korah get very real here about the threats that they face. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be thrown into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, it's a dangerous world. Consider in our own lives just three examples from the past few months. The 2019-2020 Australian bushfire season peaked back in December and January before they were uh, extinguished and largely contained. And as of March 9th of this year, it has been estimated that the fires burnt about 46 million acres. 
or 72,000 square miles, and they destroyed over 5,900 buildings, including 2,700 homes, and killed at least 34 people. And an estimated 1 billion animals have been killed, and some endangered species may be driven to extinction. On March 3rd, 2020, severe thunderstorms and tornadoes ripped through Nashville, Tennessee, overnight, killing 26 people. At one point, there were a total of, what I saw, 77 people missing. In addition to the lives taken that night, hundreds of homes and buildings were left in ruins. And late last year, an infectious disease known as the Coronavirus, or COVID-19, was identified in Wuhan, China, and has rapidly spread across the globe, becoming a pandemic, according to the World Health Organization, and has led to an experience none of us could have imagined even a few weeks ago. These are just three things that we can name out of hundreds or thousands or millions of tragic events, devastating events that occur in this world. Each of you have likely had your own personal and familial trials that have come your way in recent days. Simply considering the trials over the past few months is exhausting. We have been reminded once again, perhaps in fresh and new ways, of the frailty of humanity and the brevity of this life. Now, with the exception of COVID-19, the other disasters that I just mentioned, sadly, may seem par for the course in a fallen world. Large scale, but nationally or regionally located national disasters are common. California is constantly ablaze with out-of-control forest fires. Floods decimated West Virginia a few years ago. Tornadoes and hurricanes regularly make the news each year as they devastate different communities throughout the country. We are not strangers to the chaotic ferocity of nature. The coronavirus pandemic, however, is particularly concerning because of its global proportions. The bushfires of Australia, the tornadoes in Nashville, the floods in West Virginia, while severe and devastating, in those communities. They mainly only affected those communities. And the rest of us can come to help, perhaps. But what do you do in a situation like this where it's wreaking havoc across the entire planet? And not just medically. We are looking at economic devastation. Certainly at a national, if not global, level, like we've never seen before. Professional athletic competitions are canceled, major tournaments, entire seasons over. Students are out of school until May or maybe next year. Hourly workers are at home, missing work and the paycheck. Some may be laid off altogether. Businesses without any savings who are leveraged up buying their own stock and can't afford to cut costs to stay afloat will have to close. Churches are being forced to resort to 
online streaming. Government solutions continue to make matters worse and will likely only result in greater losses of our freedom even after the concern for the virus itself is behind us. We have difficult days ahead of us. These are but a few of the ramifications of the coming weeks, months, and years. Enter Psalm 46. As we said, we don't want to undermine the severity of the situation that we're facing, likely for years to come. And so for many people in the world, in the country, maybe in this room, the earth is giving way beneath your feet. This isn't an earthquake, literally, like the one that tore through Haiti a decade ago or the one in Nevada on Friday, but it may be a metaphorical one every bit as devastating. We don't really know how bad things could possibly get, but that is why a text like Psalm 46 is so important for us now. The earth may indeed give way. The mountains may even crack, crumble, and fall into the sea, but we do not need to fear. Concerning these first few verses of Psalm 46, Spurgeon wrote, these two phrases, earth and the mountains, giving way and being thrown into the sea, these two phrases set forth the most terrible commotions within the range of imagination and include the overthrow of dynasties, the destruction of nations, the ruin of families, the persecutions of the church, the reign of heresy, and whatever else may at any time try the faith of unbelievers. He says, let the worst come to the worst. The child of God may should never give way to mistrust. We need to be real about our situation, but we don't need to fret over it. We don't need to fear a teetering and tottering earth because God is our refuge, our fortress, and He abides with us. He is a very present help in trouble, we're told. Another way that this first line, this first and second line in verse 1 uh, could be translated as that uh, God is a well-proved help in trouble. God has proven Himself over and over. God is with us now, providing strength, protection, help, and encouragement. And so, even though the earth may give way, we do not need to fear. And so, with that, we come to our second point, which uh, in many ways just works out the truth of this first one even further. Why do we not need to fear? Excuse me. Why don't we need to fear? It's because God Himself is in our midst. Look with me at verses 4 to 7. Whose name, whose title, who is identified Repeatedly throughout this psalm, throughout these verses. It's God. It says, The city of God is made glad by the divine river. 
The Most High's holy habitation shall be refreshed by its streams. God is in her midst. God will help her when morning comes. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What is the answer that the psalmists offer to the problem of fear that threatens them when the earth gives way beneath their feet? God is with us. Over and over in this psalm, not just in verses 4 to 7, but God is set forth here as the answer to the calamity his people face. Eight out of 11 verses mention the Lord here. And so, when faced with trial and terror, we can set our minds on God and remember that He is with us. He will shelter us through the fiercest battles and from the most ferocious enemies. We're told in verse 4 that there is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Think of Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. Those who trust in the Lord and delight in His law are like what? They're like trees planted by streams of water. We need not fear the heat when it comes, for our roots are deep and connected to the river of the water of life. Those, however, who put their trust in man, who who trust in themselves, are wicked and are like shrubs in the desert or like chaff blown away by the wind. They cannot stand in the day of judgment. We don't know what the future holds with regard to these present events. But for those who fear God, we need not fear though the earth itself turn to ash. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that we won't suffer We suffer often, and sometimes to great extent, and yet our sorrow shall not have the last word. God, says verse 5, is in our midst. We shall not be moved. God will help us when morning dawns. Sorrow lasts for the night, and we do not know how long this night shall last, but joy comes at first light brothers and sisters. In verse 6, we see that the nations rage and totter. They conspire against the Lord's people. But under the mighty roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the earth melts and the mountains burn and the nations fall silent. God lifts up His voice to speak. And a earth an earth that is reeling and rocking stays put. Because right now the earth is reeling and rocking under a dark providence. And we will almost certainly feel the sting of this for days and weeks, probably months and years to come. But nevertheless, the God of Jacob, fierce and great, is near us is with us and stands as a fortress for us forever. So brother, sister, though the oceans roar, the mountains crack, the earth gives way, and the nations rage, our God is in control. We may not have seen this coming. And we certainly don't know 
what is yet to come. But God has not been caught unawares. He isn't surprised. He isn't scrambling. In 2 Chronicles 20.12, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, while facing an imminent attack of a great multitude of Moabites, Ammonites, and some of the Maronites, he offers this prayer to the Lord. He says, O our God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. When we are lost, we don't have the slightest clue of what to do next. We can lift our eyes to heaven and remember the battle is not ultimately ours, but God's. Obviously, it should come as no surprise, uh, we wrestled all week long with whether we should meet together today. Men whom I love and respect deeply have chosen, some choosing not to meet, some choosing to meet. Your elders prayed and prayed and prayed and we discussed what to do, weighing the options before us. And while we believe we've made the right and best decision, that we could have with the information before us. It wasn't an easy decision. But God's week has been decidedly different than ours. He struggled with exactly zero decisions this week. He has written the end from the beginning, and He will, He will accomplish His wise, good, and perfect plan without fail. And so if you're here or if you're listening, if you are tempted to panic, tempted to be anxious, tempted to fear, remember, God is with you. Third, then, in verses 8 through 11, to aid us in our pursuit of peace, As we consider our great God, we are instructed by the psalmist to come and behold the works of the Lord. Not only are we to reflect upon the immensity of His person and the guarantee of His dwelling with us, but we are invited to remember and to behold the might, majesty, and magnificence of His works. God has, we're told, brought desolations upon the earth. He makes wars cease. He breaks the bow and bends the spear to the point of shattering. He burns the chariots with fire. Before His might, we are to bow down before Him in stillness and in silence, in humble adoration, that He may be exalted among the nations and His name enjoyed and magnified in all the earth. So, I want to do that. I want to consider the works of God with you this morning. And there are two things, two aspects of His work that I'd like to consider with you. First, God rules over the nations. Second, He rules over nature. First, the nations under His rule. We see this 
in verse 6. We already saw this in verse 6. God speaks and kingdoms topple over. But here in verses 8 through 11, we see further that the fiercest inventions of men crumble to dust before the Lord of hosts. The bow, the spear, the war horse, and chariot, all of them come to nothing before Jacob's God. Verse 10 is interesting to me. It's a verse that I typically hear used in reference to personal devotions, quiet time for Bible reading and prayer. Now, I certainly don't mean to say that it's, uh, it's wrong to reference Psalm 46.10 when we encourage to get people to, to get alone with God in quiet reflection and worship, but I, I do think to read verse 10 in the context of verses 8 and 9 I think it paints a different picture than someone simply sitting at his breakfast nook, coffee in hand, quietly reading his Bible. The picture here is of holy reverence before the mighty God who brings desolations upon the earth and burns the chariots with fire. We are, in other words, silenced into humble adoration of our God who is a consuming fire. And so get alone with God and be still and know that He is the Lord. Yes, but consider what that means. The nations are accounted as nothing before Him. But not only does God rule over peoples and nations, but He rules over nature as well. This was made clear in verses 1-3. to We don't need to fear a teetering and tottering earth around us because God is perfectly in control of it. Early week, I, I sent out an email to the members of Redeemer Baptist Church and uh, it contained a brief reflection upon Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus uh, is asleep in a boat with His disciples and uh, a storm comes, and it's about to sink the boat, and the disciples wake him, fearing that he is going to let them perish. And he wakes, says to the wind and the waves, Be still! And still they were. Nature dared not revolt against its master. We, before the Lord, should be as still as the waters at Jesus' command. And so let us consider for a few moments a few places in Scripture that speak plainly to God's reign over nature. Job 37 says that all weather patterns come from the Lord. It says, Keep listening to the thunder of His voice and the rumbling that comes from His mouth. Under the whole heaven He lets it go and His lightning to the corners of the earth. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour, the breath of God is given and the broad waters freeze fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for His land or for love, 
He causes it to happen. God guides the forces of nature and accomplishes all that He purposes through them. There is no such thing as a stray bolt of lightning. There's no single raindrop that falls upon the earth that has not been sent by the Lord. There is no blizzard that shuts people in their homes for days that did not come at His command. And there is no stray microbe of any virus outside of His control. God not only sends rain, but Amos 4 tells us that at times He withholds rain. Micah 4. Oh, sorry, Amos 4 says, I, give you, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. I would strike you with blight and mildew. I sent you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He forms the mountains, makes the morning darkness and treads upon the heights of the earth. Drought blight, mildew, pestilence, these, like the rain, the lightning, and snow, are under His sway. Often, I think, we seem to want to remove the responsibility for disaster from God's shoulders. We want to find something or someone else uh, to blame. And while we Certainly must say God has done no wrong in all that He does. The Lord is not shy about declaring His involvement in even the most disastrous things that happen. Isaiah 45, 7 offers us something that we may likely struggle to embrace. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Concerning this verse, Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Trusting God, God Himself accepts the responsibility, so to speak, of disasters. He actually does more than accept the responsibility. He actually claims it. In effect, God says, I and I alone have the power and authority to bring about both prosperity and disaster both weal and woe, both good and bad. We may know some, but not all, of the reasons for which God sends disaster upon us. But the reasons notwithstanding, we do know that even in calamity, as Bridges concludes, all circumstances are under the watchful eye and the sovereign control of God. It's not just rain and snow and pestilence, though. God's control over nature extends to our infirmities as well. In Exodus 4.11, God responds to Moses' protest that he couldn't possibly be the person God would use to free Israel from Egyptian bondage because he had a speech impediment. And in response, God says, Who made man's mouth? Who, who has made him mute or deaf or seen or blind. 
Is it not I, the Lord? God rules over the health of men. And like His rule over the rest of nature, His rule over the health of men is loving, gracious, and merciful. We may not know why He has sent us into such turmoil, but we do know that He is in control and that He is good and He knows how to bring about His perfectly holy and righteous ends. Consider David in 2 Samuel 24. David's choice is instructive for us. We read in that passage that David is given a choice between war, famine, and pestilence as a discipline for his arrogance in counting his fighting forces. And he says to God, do not let me fall into the hands of men, but may I fall into yours, O Lord, for you are gracious. Now this doesn't mean that David believed God was not in control of the surrounding armies. But it seems to reflect his desire to be, at least from his own vantage point, directly under the chastening hand of God and endure the pestilence rather than to be indirectly under it through the means of a foreign army. Because, as he knew, God is merciful. So what do we do with all this, brothers? Sisters, we may not know what tomorrow holds for us, but we can walk by faith in the God who rules over nations, who rules over nature, and treads on the heights of the earth. God alone knows where things are heading, but we can trust Him. He has proven Himself over and over again. And so while we don't want to be cavalier about potential dangers that we face and should therefore adequately prepare ourselves for difficult days ahead, we don't want to launch ourselves into fear and panic and terror either. And so make your preparations. Take proper precautions. And trust that God will provide for you. And remember, not just provide things for you, but provide Himself for you. The God who made the seas and rules over them once walked upon them to draw near to struggling disciples who were unable to navigate their boat upon tumultuous waters. Friends, the Lord has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died for sinners like us. Therefore, we do not need to fear cracking mountains, a crumbling earth, a boiling sea, and the wrath of God, which they all represent, because the wrath of God was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a death that we must all taste. A first death. But the second death has no claim over those who have already died with Christ and been raised to newness of life. So take heart, beloved. Whatever may come, comes to you from the hand of a mighty, sovereign God who sent His Son into the world so that any who would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so, 
as uncertain as the days ahead are. Let us now and in days to come say in faith with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation." God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. 